0: Somehow, when it comes to racism and combating racism, and finding racism in this same way, with this understanding of the full picture of the human being at the center of your approach, somehow the question is raised, for some reason the question is raised, well, why does the burden have to be on the person of color? It's like, I I think it's fundamentally the wrong question because it's fundamentally a misunderstanding of what's going on. Yes, it is a burden. Of course it is a burden. But it is also an incredible opportunity. And in many ways, it is an incredible gift, I would actually go so far as to say, to be engaged in the spiritual work of actually trying to alleviate suffering. Not only the suffering that is being inflicted upon you, but also the suffering that is affecting the person and persecuting you. It is actually a gift to be able to contribute to raising people to their higher self.
1: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. You don't have to be hyper attuned to the so-called culture wars to have noticed that there's been some buzz in the news lately about the increasing influence of anti-racism training modules in schools and in workplaces often referred to as DEI or Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, this framework has turned into a big business with concepts like white fragility and black despair, sometimes weaponized in the name of fighting inequality. Amid the swirl of approaches, a 27-year-old writer and entrepreneur named Chloe Valdery has developed an alternative model called the Theory of Enchantment. This model uses the arts and developmental psychology to help people find a common humanity through a shared love of culture. In this interview, Chloe talked about how she came up with this idea, how her own unusual family background made her resistant to essentialist identity categories, and why she thinks the frequently invoked social justice refrain, "it's not my job to educate you," is so misguided. Chloe Valdery Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Megan. I've known a bit about your work for the last couple of years. I've been, I think I've been a guest on at least two of your podcasts. Uh, and I've wanted to have you on this show for a long time, but I've been waiting for the right time. And I feel like now uh, is that time because after several months of sort of ambient chatter about the various dynamics of diversity and inclusion training, both in schools and in corporate settings, I think we're finally starting to hear pretty targeted critiques of it. Um, so, you know, you've been around for a while offering something different with Theory of Enchantment. Uh, but before we talk about what theory of enchantment is. I was hoping you could help me sort of go through a brief history of diversity and inclusion as a curriculum and also the critical race theory that, that underpins a lot of it. I I am in the, I am in the fortunate position of working at home by myself and I have never um, been taken through any of these programs. So um, what, what's, what's sort of the, the, the brief history of all this? So, I could be ignorant uh as to like
0: an actual robust understanding of the history of diversity and inclusion training. I think it actually came out of the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four and various uh anti discrimination laws it, uh, after which companies um did not want to be sued uh, for for discrimination in the workplace and so um Basically, there was an impulse, there was an ambition to bring in diversity and inclusion trainings, I think more from an HR perspective, more from a sort of check the box so you don't get sued perspective, Mm -hmm. um, uh, as opposed to what's going on now, which I think is slightly different. So that's the general history, as I understand it, of diversity and inclusion trainings um the history of critical race theory is a bit more broad critical race theory came out of critical legal studies which was a kind of social science that came out of the mid-1970s um and critical race theorists have a believe in a a number of tenets but one of their primary tenets is that uh racism is the primary motivator of disparities in political power in wealth uh, and in other factors uh, between blacks and whites in this country.
1: Okay. So in preparing for this, I did some poking around for DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, training models. And I don't know, maybe it was just the nature of the what popped up in my Google, but the level that a lot of them seem to be operating on is unsophisticated to the point of being insulting it, it, it was like watching there, there were videos on the websites for some of these i don't know if, what what do you call them modules are they actually like companies it's like watching an elementary school film strip from the 1970s like you know <laughs> walk in someone else's shoes or like these yeah. vapid thurgood marshall quotes so like what <laughs> what are are these are these like Corporations are they? Um, how do they sort of define themselves as entities?
0: Uh, you're talking about uh, the, the the companies that provide the training,
1: yeah, or just like the yeah. you know, what what is called? So, like, if a given HR department feels that they need to do a DEI training, like who d- who do they call? How do they find out about it? What kind of arrangement is made, um, and what is the goal?
0: So they're usually called firms. And I think they exist in the, in the arena of like consultancies. So it's really like consulting okay. firms, DEI consulting firms, and then an HR personnel, which simply Google uh, for a, a viable firm or, and or ask around for any recommendations internally. Um, so that's the general process, at least as it's been for a long time. And in terms of their deliverables, what they usually deliver or what they often deliver, and I'm generalizing here, what they often deliver are anything from, you know, two-day workshops to working with a company over the long term to help them inform their mission statement or their vision statement with the principles of DEI. And that can be, you know, as as broad as working through a number of modules to understand the history of racism in this country and then uh, wanting to do what you can as a company to, I guess, play your part in rectifying that history. Uh, and it, it, but it can also include, uh, you know, changing your hiring practices uh, to so that so that your staff reflects a more diverse, uh, you know, uh, society or, or reflects the diversity of America itself.
1: Okay, and when would you say this started taking off? Is it really just in the last few years? So,
0: fun fact, <laughs> DEI has actually been a pretty um, lucrative business, uh, lucrative industry, for a long time. Uh, stats that came out in 2017 with, I believe it was McKinsey, said that DEI was an $8 billion industry. This was in 2017, prior wow. to everything that occurred last year. I can only imagine how that number has probably ballooned, you know, only in the last 12 months alone. So my understanding is that, you know, this industry has been an industry that has been pretty uh, influential for a long time. I think it's just getting more, uh, people are just getting more and more exposed to it. And it's also being more talked about on public media, you know, on the news, on social media in a way that it wasn't previously being spoken about on those platforms.
1: Okay. Okay. So, what what is theory of enchantment? I know it's it's you call it an it's an anti-racism course rooted in developmental psychology. But tell us how it's different from other. Uh, I don't even know if you're calling it a DEI training model. You're calling it an anti-racism course. So what what is it, and why is it better than <laughs> a lot of <laughs> other stuff that's out there?
0: Yeah. So theory
1: of enchantment
0: is my company. Uh, we provide an anti-racism practice. Rooted in developmental psychology, more specifically, we are heavily informed by the writings of James Baldwin and Dr. King and the civil rights establishments, particularly their understandings of the psychological underpinnings of racism, which tends to be Absent from a lot of d- the discourse in critical race theory, the psychological or the spiritual element of what causes people to fall into a cycle of supremacist ways of thinking in the first place. Um, reading and studying a lot of the texts and writings and sermons of, again, the civil rights uh, era gener- generation, we have distilled the formula for how uh, supremacy occurs. Um, In the following ways, Uh, racism occurs when a human being or a group of human beings experience some kind of psychological insecurity, whether that's fear, real or perceived, whether that's a feeling of a lack of worth, self-worth, a feeling of a lack of belonging, significance. These are all factors and emotions that are natural to the human condition. Uh, These are also all factors that are exacerbated during a global pandemic. But what we do as a species, what we have done as a species, is we have developed defensive mechanisms to deal with those psychological insecurities. And one of the defensive mechanisms that we have developed is overcompensation. And it's overcompensation that manifests uh, in supremacist ways of thinking. So anyone can be or fall prey to supremacist ways of thinking. It doesn't matter what skin color you you have. It doesn't matter your background. But the term supremacy is a confusing and imprecise term because it's actually informed by an inferiority complex, hence the overcompensation. So what we do at Theory of Enchantment is we give people a self-refinement practice to help them deal with things like imperfection and vulnerability and mortality and baggage, as well as gifts, the gifts that we bring to bear Uh, as human beings, as well as our potential, so that the impulse to overcompensate becomes less likely to occur in the first place. Uh, So this is like very, again, psychological, spiritual work. It's focused on the internal being as opposed to external outcomes, which we believe are are ultimately driven by the internal being uh, in the first place. And so this is something... This is something that distinguishes us, certainly, from some of our competitors. Another thing, uh, our our competitors that exist in the critical race theory space, another key uh, point that, or key belief, rather, that distinguishes us is, I think, and you can hear this in popular discourse today, there's a lot of discourse around power, there's a lot of discourse around privilege, there's a lot of discourse around um, sort of this oppressor-oppressed dichotomy. Notwithstanding that we find some challenges to that Black or white narrative, even if we were to accept the oppressor oppressed dichotomy. In the theory of enchantment universe, and this was something that James Baldwin said, um, in any oppressive society, both the oppressor and the oppressed suffer. So the idea of calling someone or a group of people who are either acting in racist ways, or who are promoting racist behaviors, the idea of calling those people privileged is absurd (laughs) to us. Um, It's an absurd idea because people who are afflicted by the pathology of racism, again, are suffering from a lack of self for which they are overcompensating. So there's a great deal of suffering inherent in supremacist ways of being. So we would never call someone acting out in that way as privilege, because it just doesn't doesn't make sense. So those are two I'd say primary differences between the theory of enchantment and other approaches that are rooted in the critical race theory approach.
1: Okay, yeah, that resonates with me so much because as I've written and I've probably said too many times on this podcast, like I. I had a similar sort of philosophy when it comes to sexism, like Mm -hmm. the idea, you know, as a, as a woman, like the idea that a man is being sexist to me or around me, that, that doesn't, that gives him less power in Mm -hmm. my, in my opinion, like Mm -hmm. this idea that somehow um, he's diminishing me, he's diminishing himself. But, but again, Mm -hmm. like that, you know, for me to feel that way requires a certain amount of, Okay, you know hashtag privilege, and there is a kind of um, you know you do have to have a sort of baseline agency and and feeling of self self possession. So it's a little bit you know I, I've certainly been criticized by other feminists for sort of just you know sh- blowing off the um, you know the, the seriousness of men behaving in misogynist or, or sexist ways. So I don't know, does that come up in the in the trainings, or have you received that kind of critique?
0: Yes. And I was just saying, you know, this is something that I've seen Camille Paglia bring up this exact same point um, (laughs) in a sort of different kind of way, because she insists that women are actually superior to men. Um, But
1: yeah, well, she is. She is in any case. (laughs) Yes. Um, But
0: yeah, I would say I have received similar um, retorts. Uh, It's less actually it's less like dismissive uh, because I say in the beginning of any workshop that I facilitate, you know, this is very hard work. Uh, the, the work, the, the work that came out of or the philosophy rather of Dr. King and the nonviolent agitation that he and other protesters in the South embarked upon is very difficult work and it's spiritual work. It's not simply a material work. It's spiritual work. So I say that at the outset. And I think that kind of, lays the groundwork for people to understand precisely what it is I'm speaking about. But the objection, and this is an interesting one, the the consist, most consistent objection that I've gotten was, I agree that this is great work. I agree that this is important work. I don't understand why the burden has to be on the person of color to do it. Mm. And I find that so fascinating. I find it such a fascinating response because it is still born out of this illusion of separation that is being perpetuated by a whole host of different factors in society this illusion of separation between human beings based upon skin color now if i were to say to you a teacher in a in a in a class has noticed that one kid is not acting acting well he's acting out he's disrupting the class you know, the teacher probes into the the student's life, discovers that the student has problems going on at home, uh, is dealing with a lot of material conditions that's actually driving his or her insecurity. And now the teacher wants to do things that are in her power to actually help alleviate some of the suffering that that person, that that child is going through. No one would ever ask me if I told you that scenario yes I understand this is good this is important work but why is the burden on the teacher right we have this understanding when it comes to children uh and when it comes to I can give you another example with adults if I told you that a person is actually engaging uh, I'll talk about Father Gregory Boyle with Homeboy Industries the largest Mm -hmm. gang rehabilitation center in the country uh you know and he has he and his team have gone out and successfully rehabilitated you know, hundreds of of former gang members gotten them jobs, gotten them resources. These are people who are involved in very violent crimes, right? And very violent conflicts. And yet no one, again, would ask, I presume, Father Gregory Boyle, this is all wonderful, but why is the burden on you? But somehow when it comes to racism and combating racism and fighting racism in this same way with this understanding of the full, picture of the human being at the center of your approach somehow the question is raised for some reason the question is raised well why does the burden have to be on the person of color it's like I think it's fundamentally the wrong question because it's fundamentally a misunderstanding of what's going on yes it is a burden of course it is a burden but it is also an incredible opportunity and in many ways it is an incredible gift I would actually go so far as to say to be and engage in the spiritual work of actually trying to alleviate suffering, not only the suffering that is being inflicted upon you, but also the suffering that is affecting the person persecuting you. It is actually a gift to be able to contribute to raising people to their higher self.
1: Yeah, and I'm reminded of the social justice trope, it's not my job to educate you. Like, that, that <laughs> comes up a lot, right? And uh, I just yes. feel like it's so... It's so simplistic. It's like, well, yeah, actually, that's the whole job. Like that's yeah. that's called being a human being. You need to represent yourself. You need to be clear about who you are and what you're saying. It's like the idea that it's somehow burdensome to um, have some, uh, you know, precision in your expression or you know, or, or, you yeah. know, say what you say. Just say your ideas and say yeah. what you mean. Uh, you know, it's one of those just kind of, I think, platitudes in, in the in that in the social justice sphere that people don't really bother to think too hard about. But so, okay. If somebody, um, if somebody contracts with theory of theory of enchantment or, or mm-hmm. brings you or somebody in for a training, what does that look like? Do you, do they like take the weekend? Do they go on a retreat somewhere? Is there, you know, do you yeah. have to stay up all night and be <laughs> deprived of sleep?
0: <laughs> no, we haven't, we haven't offered that service yet, but okay. so, so, there's there's two main offerings that we have now. We have our self-paced course, which anyone can go online and enroll in at any time. And we've had organizations that have decided to enroll some or all of their employees in that. Um, like I said, that's online. That's a 25 lesson course. It's roughly 50 hours to complete. It's 50 bucks. It's the most accessible, and it takes uh, it takes our uh, practitioners through modules that reflect the three principles of the theory of enchantment, which is treat people like human beings, not political abstractions, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, and try to root everything you do in love and compassion. So the self-paced course takes people through modules and through lessons that teach them how to embody those practices and how to live out those practices. There's also, we have a, a, a workshop, we have a full-day workshop that we facilitate. So if someone just wants, you know, kind of a theory of enchantment uh, appetizer, (laughs) then they can hire us to do a group workshop for their employees. Uh, It's a full day workshop, like I said. It's taking you through the basics of the theory of enchantment. The other thing I forgot to mention is, in addition to those three principles, the theory of enchantment uses the arts to teach all of these three principles. Uh, So we, we will have our students engage with music and film and, you know, literature and, um, and poetry and philosophy uh, to help them start to practice and start to internalize those three principles. But those are the two main uh, sort of offerings that we have.
1: And have you gone in and done these trainings yourself? Yes. And what kinds of uh, experiences have you had there? What kinds of things have people said? Has there been anything surprising? Have they gone through other sorts of trainings that have been quite different?
0: Sometimes that is the case.
1: Sometimes it is the case that
0: um, organizations have gone through trainings that are more sort of CRT. And then they... That's critical race theory, yeah. Yes, yes. And then they bring theory of enchantment and... um, it's it's interesting to see the interplay uh but i would say in general most people respond by describing it as actually quite transformational i would argue it's probably more transformational if you take the self-paced course just because it's longer um and like you know spread out over time but um people describe it as transformational and also people describe it as like making them think in a totally new way about this issue, um, if that makes sense.
1: So, And by this issue, what do they mean when how, they say how that?
0: How to actually fight racism.
1: Anti-racism. What is now being called anti-racism. Exactly. Okay. And where does the name Theory of Enchantment come from? I know this is an arts-based program, and you've said that you – I think it was if people ask what your political – ideology is. And you said you believe in art. So talk talk yes. about the, the role of the arts in this and where the, the name Theory of Enchantment came from.
0: Yeah, so my background is actually in international studies. With a, I, I majored in that. It was the concentration in diplomacy, conflict and diplomacy. And I came out of that thinking that there were no frameworks to teach people how to love. There are frameworks to teach people how to combat conflict, but no frameworks to teach people how to love. And I was at the Wall Street Journal for a year in 2015, and I worked on the thesis trying to see if I could actually create a framework to teach people how to love. And I decided to put forth a hypothesis, which was, uh, in order to teach people how to love, I have to ask, well, what are people already in love with? And then work backwards. And what people are already in love with is pop culture. And so I started studying brands like Nike and Disney and Beyonce to see if there was a common denominator across these brands. And the common denominator was that all of them created content where their audience saw their full imperfect selves and their potential reflected in the content. And that is why these brands have been able to cultivate a quasi-religious like Devotion from their fans, and so I thought that was very interesting, and I I concluded that that is what any framework must reflect. Any framework that I will teach people how to love has to reflect to people their full imperfect selves and their potential. So I decided to call that phenomenon enchantment because enchantment number one was already associated with Disney and you know magical kingdom enchanted forests. But also there's a Mm -hmm. book by Guy Kawasaki, the former marketing director of Apple, called Enchantment, which he describes as the process by which you delight someone. with a product, a service, a person, or an idea. And he talked about how Steve Jobs used that to to develop a lot of the aesthetic of Mac products. And so that's how I I landed on Enchantment. And also that's how I landed on the arts, because for me – uh, in this context, pop culture is synonymous with the arts. Um, but, but it's also important to mention, to sort of put it in context of the day, the arts is super important because uh, you know, it's, it's currently very popular to reduce human beings to, to certain stereotypes, certain political abstractions, certain caricatures. Whereas the purpose and the role of the arts is to actually give expression to the full range of the human condition, to the fullness. Of the human condition, so so art stands in as uh, as sort of a, <laughs> I don't want to say a weapon because that sounds a little bit um, silly, but it's it stands in as a as the antithesis of the movement that's going on uh, in certain aspects of our political culture. It certainly stands in tension with. Uh, uh certain trends in our political culture. But additionally, the arts has been used historically in the African American community as a platform to teach people resiliency and self-refinement and character development. And so we want to continue that tradition and transmit that tradition to new, to new and older generations that may not have not been exposed to it.
1: And is it just a matter, this is like a really banal question, but I feel like people are probably wondering, like, is it Is it a matter of people talking to each other about what arts they love and seeing that it transcends race or identity? Like what would be an example of, say, a lesson or an interaction that you've observed between people in this regard?
0: So I'll break it down this way. So we take the first principle, treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. But this begs the question, what does it actually mean to be a human being? Right? And then we go into, in particular, the complexity of emotions that we have as human beings. We can feel joy, we can feel pain, we can feel sorrow, we can feel grief, we can feel you know, delight, rage, etc. All of these are a testament to the fact that as human beings we have the capacity to do good and to do evil. And it's critical that anyone in the Theory of Enchantment program recognize that about themselves right? Um, Because then they will be less likely to caricature themselves, and then they will be less likely to caricature others. And a a way in which uh, pop culture comes into that conversation uh, is a a discussion, let's say, around Kendrick Lamar's uh, lyric in the song DNA, where he says, I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA, right? So whether it's in a self-paced course, or with a group on screen, I put that lyric on screen, and I ask the group to think about what this means, how this lands for them, given we're talking about what it actually means to be a human being, right? How this, how this lands for for the group, but also how it lands for how one sees oneself. So that's a way in which the arts are actually used as a tool to expand upon certain prompts and certain ideas and certain questions that um, students are challenged to contemplate within the theory of enchantment
1: uh, approach. Now, you just said students. Are, are you implementing this in schools as well?
0: So schools are hard to crack. Uh, I started out actually targeting schools, but schools are super bureaucratic and so, full of so much red tape that it's very difficult to sell and deliver curriculum to schools. Now, we are starting to see a few schools here and there contract with us to do workshops And, uh, that's exciting. And eventually we want to develop a more robust plan to, and a more, uh, I guess systematic plan to deliver this content to schools. But it's challenging because, primarily because of the bureaucracy and because of the red tape that is just endemic to
1: Educational institutions, I guess, public, public or private, I both, suppose. Yeah, both. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, because it does seem like this entire kind of conversation has been highlighted by the fact that s- kids have been home, you know, going to Zoom school, and parents are seeing what's being taught, and there are all these. Um, diversity and inclusion, anti-racism trainings that have been, you know, really integrated se- pretty pretty seamlessly and pretty deeply internalized in, in a lot of schools. There's this program that I have been hearing about lately called the Pollyanna Program, which I'm sure you know about. Um, you know, I think this was the one that, that you know, they, it, the Dalton School, Nightingale Bamford, Harvard-Westlake, um, a number of, you know, extremely elite, well-known private schools have been using this. And we just had in the last couple of weeks, Paul Rossi, he was a math teacher at um, another private school in New York, uh, stepped forward and wrote an open letter just about um, what he saw as uh, almost like you know, I- I emotionally damaging uh, ways of of going through this kind of training. I mean, students being, you know, pressured to conform to, you know, their opinions, to those broadly associated with their race. Um, you know, he was talking about the morally compromised status of the oppressor as assigned to one group of students based on their immutable characteristics. You know, you hear stories of students, you know, separated into groups by race. I mean, it sounds astonishing that this goes on, but apparently it is uh was this something that that you've known about and we should say you you are a young person yourself are are you 27 <laughs> is that right i am yes so, okay okay uh like what you're not that <laughs> long out of school yourself like was this going on um either in your school or in anyone else's school that you knew about when you were a teenager no this is very new this is a
0: moral panic in response to a lot of the events that occurred last year with George Floyd and uh, Ahmaud Arbery and other individuals. Um, it it also is just more of an indication that people are doing things uh, who, who haven't been trained, really, <laughs> to do these things, um, who it seems to me have no actual area... Of expertise on this subject matter, and and are just sort of playing willy nilly with the lives of young people in this case, which is very very especially bad because, as you know, young people are super impressionable uh, and highly malleable. So, but this was not this was not happening when I was younger. This is a very new thing. It's a very recent thing.
1: We're going to pause here for a brief message.
2: Hi there. My name is Paul Shirley. I'm a former professional basketball player turned writer and also the founder of a thing called The Process. I'm honored to have a few seconds within Megan's podcast to tell you what we do at The Process. If you're anything like most people, you're scattered, overstimulated, and frustrated by your inability to concentrate for long periods of time. Texts, emails, social media, and somehow you're expected to make progress at your job and on your passion projects. It's a lot. This is where the process comes in. I believe that everything worth doing requires a process to do it, a set of habits and routines that allow you to access sustained periods of deep work. Through virtual co-working and productivity coaching, that's what we do at The Process. We help people like you learn to be productive, not busy. And here's the best part. You won't be doing this alone. Inside our platform, you'll meet people from all over the world, people who are dealing with the same frustrations you are, and people who want the same things you do, structure, accountability, community, and most of all, progress on the projects most important to you. We'd love to have you. To learn more, come see us at createyourprocess.com.
1: So let's talk about your background. You're from New Orleans. Um, you, I think, you went to schools that were, you know, extremely mixed racially. Um, you are a black woman. What was your relationship to race as a capital T topic uh, growing up? So that's a great question. It's interesting. I I went to both predominantly
0: black schools and also super super mixed schools. So like. First school I went to was Langston Hughes Elementary School, it's a predominantly black school. Second school I went to was Heinz, which is a mix a mixed school. And then in in sort of middle school area, I went to predominantly black school McDonald Thirty Five for a few years, and then I went to a predominantly mixed school, uh, Benjamin Franklin. So there's been this interesting ebb and flow, uh, to to put it to sort of reduce it to. This ebb and flow between the particular and the universal, the particular and the universal, even in my educational experience, and I, I, I imagine that that has certainly, even you know, if not consciously, subconsciously shaped my approach and my understanding. Um, and I can tell you, at Langston Hughes, the first thing I I remember being assigned to do was to recite poetry, recite the poetry of Dr. Maya Angelou and others, uh, and Langston Hughes, of course, uh, you know, the namesake, um, and others who came out of the Harlem Renaissance. So that gave me a, a kind of racial, certainly a racialized identity, but which can only be, I think, ultimately described as a sort of rooted cosmopolitanism. Right. Um, so it was it, it balanced both, again, the particular and the universal, um, which is a hard balance to to strike, actually, I think, and a hard balance to cultivate uh, on the part of educators. And also, of course, the influences of my family played a role as well. Um, but I, I, I think that term rooted cosmopolitanism uh, is a central aspect of my identity
1: say more about that what what does rooted cosmopolitism mean i like it but i want to understand it more
0: i think it's like the capacity to to really it it goes back to the particular and universal right the attachment to to the capacity to see all of humanity uh in a joyful way ultimately (laughs) um is linked to one's capacity to to have particular attachments in one one's own community, right? One's very local, um, regional community, um, and so my my sort of southern black heritage lends itself to an appreciation for all cultures, in a sense. Um, so that's how I would describe at least my experience of rooted cosmopolitanism.
1: And you went to college we should say that the internship you were doing at the wall street journal you were an undergraduate at that time and so you were at that that you were working on your undergraduate thesis when you no, were there no, is that I right had, i
0: had actually just graduated it was okay. like a
1: month okay. after graduation yeah okay um yeah i think you, you might be the only person to do a wall street journal internship and study like you know the nature of love <laughs> uh, people, it's not part of their brand necessarily <laughs> although uh i mean it's it's certainly like it's it seems actually a, a perfect um, kind of amalgamation of, of all your interests. So, what was it like in college? Was it um, was there a lot of uh, what we used to call PC, political correctness, which is now called uh, wokeness? What was the climate like for you uh, as a college student?
0: So, this is also a great question. In college, I was heavily involved with discussions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In part, this is because, this is, again, I, I mentioned my international studies background, but it, it was also more than that. So I grew up in, you know, New Orleans. I grew up in a Christian family, but my family actually observed a lot of Jewish customs. And so I grew up with a great deal of affinity for Jewish culture and Judaism. And that led me to create and be involved in sort of Israel community uh, in,
1: in college. Uh, but wait I, did they think that was straight wait hang on a second and yeah. did your was your family did they observe this was this just sort of like a family quirk or was there like did you have jewish ancestry was this like uh what was how was how did this uh evolve
0: so there's some weird trippy things that have definitely like come up in my family like my 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 grandfather on my father's side, who I never met, was stated to have actually converted to Judaism, apparently. It's a, I, I haven't been able to see any, uh, you know, concrete proof of that, but it is part of the family lore that <laughs> my grandfather on my father's side actually also had uh, an affinity for Jewish culture and had f- Jewish friends in New Orleans, and was also involved on the business level with the Jewish community, and actually may have converted to to Judaism, but as far as I know, um, he also, which this is crazy, he also had such an affinity for, uh, for Judaism that he gave all of his sons like Jewish middle names. So my father's middle name is Jacob. For example, um, so like very serendipitous and strange things. But other than that, uh, no, we observed a very small. We went to a very small church, very similar to Seventh Day Adventists, right? Seventh Day Adventists go to church on Saturday instead of Sunday. We did the same thing, um, but there is that there is that interesting strangeness uh, uh, about my grandfather.
1: Okay, so you went to college and you were involved uh you were like a big Zionist like what was going on at at that time and how were you received
0: um it depends on who you're talking about um but I think part of what I know that part of what drove my my need to figure out how to create a framework for love uh was because all these events that were that were being hosted on the campus whether it was Pro-Israel events or pro-Palestinian events kept descending into shouting matches, right? And in both, and in both cases, communities, both of the communities involved would hurl epithets at each other and engage in, uh, basically treating people like abstractions <laughs> as opposed to treating people like human beings. And so the three principles actually came out of my frustration with, uh, with that, uh, environment and also a desire to say, is it possible to create a set of principles where everyone will agree, everyone agree to these principles? Everyone will agree to abide by these principles in this space. What is less important is like agreement on every single issue because that's not a thing anyway. That's not a, that, why would that be a thing, right? Um, but what is more, what is more desirable and more achievable is that we will treat people, we will treat each other with love and compassion, even in the face of profound disagreement. Um, so yeah, that history of activism was very critical to me, sort of, you can think of it like I used to be, I think I used to be extremely black and white-minded. I know I used to be extremely black and white-minded. And, but it just wasn't working for me, <laughs> you
1: know, on some level. Well, what do you mean? I mean, it's like, like in high school or before that? I mean, uh, how, how far back are you talking about? It seems like you're pretty open-minded by the time you got to college. So, are you talking about high school? No,
0: I'm just saying like, I just mean like I don't know if the, I can give an exact age, but like I I feel like I used to be far more uh, dogmatic in my in my thinking about the way the world worked um, in general. And I remember taking a class in anthropology class, which basically. Uh, upended my world and upended my worldview. It was was called Anthropology of Religion, Magic, and Witchcraft. Very fascinating class. Uh, It was like a comparative religion class. And my professor was an agnostic. And at the time, I was pretty dogmatically religious. And I put her in a box. I assumed that because she was agnostic, that she and I couldn't really relate to each other. Um, And I sort of othered her. And then one day she assigned to us to watch this documentary, Jesus Camp. I don't know if you're familiar with this. uh, Yes, I have seen it. Yes. And it's basically, I don't think to any fault of the filmmakers, it it doesn't really positively depict a particular evangelical community that send their kids to this camp where the kids are taught to like, I don't know, like do things like speak in tongues or like, prayer things or what have you. It doesn't depict them in a positive light. So the next day I go to class and there's this there's this student in the class and she's an atheist and she just starts railing on these these this community and my agnostic teacher who I othered starts defending the people in the documentary and starts to say things like, you know, this class is about, uh, and I don't really actually don't remember the specifics of what she said, but so she said something to the, so the tune of like this class is about understanding the motivations uh, and and the the very human motivations that, you know, motivate people to do what they do. And if you can't have a compassion for that, if you can't have empathy for that, then you're really missing the point of this class. And you're really failing the class in some way. And I had I hadn't expected her because I had put her in a box, right? I hadn't expected her to say things like that, or say anything like that. And it totally shattered my worldview because the paradigm, this black and white paradigm that I was existing in, didn't work anymore. It wasn't functioning anymore. Um, so that, I would say, was probably, that that was a moment, that was a, a, an instrumental moment in um, moving me less toward a scarcity mindset and more towards uh, an abundance sort of non-zero-sum framework.
1: So let's talk about your relationship to this sort of, you know, this current conversation, anti-racism, however you want to define that. You wrote, um, well, I guess it's gosh, four years ago now almost, um, a, a piece in the New York Times and the opinion page, uh, right after the Charlottesville, uh, you know, right after the Charlottesville riots. Um, and it, I, I am assuming you, you did not write this title. Why I, did. I refuse to avoid white people. Yes. Yeah, I did not. Um, that was not no, me. That goes without saying. Uh, <laughs> you know but you you talk about how the the sort of vernacular of social media around that time it was very much like this it's time ta- you know you say it's time to stop talking about racism with white people whiteness is always protected i mean this is the kind of stuff you know it's very twitter friendly this is the kind of stuff that you hear all the time and I, i'm always like I, I never know quite how seriously to take it like how exercised once you get over this Kind of thing. But um, why, why did you write that piece at that time? And sort of how invested were you back in the summer of 2017 in what has now become like a, a much more dynamic and comprehensive conversation about race uh, being had by all kinds of people, including a lot of people of color?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly because I was four years ago, but I think I remember seeing another article in the New York Times where the author proposed that his ch- children couldn't be friends with um, white kids. And I just thought that that was absurd. Um, and also kind of like on some level, emotionally abusive
1: <laughs> towards your children. Um, well, yes. And, uh, and racist. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and also a, a weird like recapitulation of rhetoric from Jim Crow. <laughs> um Uh, and I was, I was just like, this, this is kind of astonishing on some level, you know? Um, and I, I think that that was the, the thrust of what motivated me to write that piece, if I remember correctly. And how was it received? Um, I thought it was received pretty well. Um, I don't remember any, you know, backlash or anything like that. I I think it's a pretty basic, normal, common sense position to have. Well, maybe not, because now nowadays things are different, actually, in our national discourse. But I think at the time, most people received it and thought it was pretty, uh, a, a, just a normal, reasonable position to take.
1: Mm-hmm. So do you think this piece would be... Published today. I mean, it's a pretty anodyne piece. Yeah, I'm actually looking yeah. at it now. I'm trying to pull out something <laughs> that like is even uh, you know. Uh, I mean, you you talk about you know how you you did experience racism, and you know your parents you know would tell you about the Jim Crow South, and um, they had taken you to see uh, an exhibit about that, and you had gotten very upset as a child, and um, you know, but they also say you know my my parents told me that part of our past that we should always remember that the Jim Crow era was part of our past, but one of its many lessons was to make sure to treat others equally, even if they did not respond in turn. I mean, that sounds a lot like when they go low, we go high, like take the high road. That just seems like a, you know, sort of mature, um, kind of, you know, emotionally and psychologically stable way to go through the world. Um, but do you think that like saying those kinds of things now, uh is less acceptable. We don't even hear like the Obama isms uh of that nature anymore. I think that they they're they're certainly out of fashion in, in many circles.
0: I think it yeah, I think it depends. I don't want to overplay the sort of despair card uh when it comes to the environment that we're dealing with now. I think it depends. I I think that I'm still received on some level, when I say it, um, because, perhaps because I preface it by saying it's actually hard <laughs> to go high when someone goes low. I think it's important to acknowledge that, but it's also important to acknowledge that the reason for that—and this was critical to you know the civil rights movement—the spiritual practice against resentment and against vengeance. Um, the, the reason why it's important is because if you go low, then you are also now being corrupted. Right so if you are if you are interested in the quality of life and in the dignity of uh of a minority community uh in the face of persecution then it is incumbent upon you actually to ensure that whatever suggestions or advice or forms of allyship you know that you want to take do not actually create a space that in which sort of the moral character of that people begins to deteriorate because that's actually not advancing black lives if you do that. Um, and and again, I think part of the problem is that, or perhaps I didn't say this earlier, but I think part of the problem is that people are having conversations about material conditions instead of having conversations about spiritual and existential conditions. And this this is a mismatch. This is a misalignment uh, that creates all sorts of problems and all sorts of confusion Around this topic of anti-racism,
1: but do you think it's that we shouldn't be focusing on material conditions as much as we should be focusing them on them in a more honest and therefore productive way? I mean, I do think that like there are you know there are real uh, solutions to be had out there. We are we are wanting for um, any number of. Uh, you know, a- approaches so we can make things better. And part of the problem is that we're not being honest about this kind of material facts of the situation. And so if you're not even starting from a place of, you know, acknowledging what is true and what is real, then you can't even begin to come up with the, the with the solutions. So is it, do you really think, you know, I know you've talked about being in a, in a, in a crisis of, of meaning, but, um, what do you, how do you kind of like, um sharpen that into a a fine point of um of, of a sort of specific example or or anecdote
0: well it's like why would anyone want to talk about the facts or the truths or be able to acknowledge the truth if their sense of self is off in the first place like if they if they have if they have no sense of wholeness from which to speak about themselves in the first place uh It seems to me that one logically follows, ironically, one logically follows the other. Um, In terms of an anecdote, I'm not sure that I can pull one off the top of my head uh, right now. But I just don't think that, I don't think that merely having a conversation about material conditions or material factors or outcomes is sufficient in um, achieving what we want to achieve, which is ultimately the flourishing of our society and an end to the mistreatment of any human being, presumably in the country because of their you know skin color or ethnic background. I'm not sure that merely having a conversation about you know how much how, how much um, how much access to political power, one half. It, it. It seems to me that there's a, a, a step that's being missed. There's a foundational step that's being skipped. That has to do with the psychology and the spiritual um, conditions, which are desiccated right now in the country. Right. And how so, and how so, that leads to some of these problems.
1: So, if somebody like like Glenn Lowry, uh, the the Brown University economist, like he will use a lot of similar words, crisis of, you know, sort of moral crisis, community crisis, spiritual crisis. But he'll be talking, for instance, about family structure in the black community, the sort of, you know, legacy of fatherless households or, you know, um, diminishing academic standards, this kind of thing. Like how much of what you're doing uh, dovetails into that kind of sphere of, of, uh, inquiry and debate
0: yeah that's a good question i'd say like ultimately theory of enchantment is going to be successful if people decide to do it not just in you know as individuals but as communities um and so i think that community i think that the the it it is critical for a community to be sustained to sustained economically and uh spiritually in order for uh for legal enfranch- enfranchisement to occur. I'm writing a piece about this right now where I make the argument that racism, state-sanctioned racism in the you know 20th century was present in both the North and the South. But Dr. King and the civil rights generation found it in many ways much more harder to do nonviolent agitation in the North because the North did not have the powerful Black institutions to the same extent that the South did. The South had a myriad of Black-owned businesses, the Black church, um, you know, Black radio stations, newspapers, etc. There was an actual community, and that community actually gave people in the community a sense of self-worth, which allowed them or motivated them to call for a political reality and a legal reality that reflected their already innate dignity. Whereas after the civil rights acts were passed and Dr. King tried to go to the North and particularly the ghettos in Chicago, he found that those individuals were actually suffering from a sense of much greater despair than folks in the South. The common denominator was not, well, you know, again, racism was in both areas, but the difference between the North and the South was the powerful black institutions, which, again, did not exist in the same way in the North. And this also goes back a little to the debate between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Bois. But, yeah, so in that sense, I'd say that it, it, it dovetails with this idea of, of rooted cosmopolitanism. One has to be rooted in a community. One has to be rooted in, in in something in order to feel a sense of dignity for which they will then fight for, right? And and if that's not present, then that's gonna that's gonna be problematic.
1: That's perfectly put. That that makes a lot of sense. Oh, well, I, I know you're up against the clock, but I actually I want to ask you something, Chloe. And I wanted to ask you this for a long time. You are you are part of what uh, you know might be described as a sort of loose constellation of thinkers and writers and entrepreneurs um, who are pushing back against this kind of you know re- what what many of them would call regressive orthodoxy around race. Uh, I've seen you in discussions with people like the writers. Thomas Chatterton-Williams, Coleman Hughes, John McWhorter. There's there's also Camille Foster, who's – I'm not sure how he identifies himself professionally as a <laughs> political commentator, entrepreneur. He also doesn't uh, identify as black, even though uh, he's uh, – all, all these all these folks are are black. You have in common that you're all black, uh, even Camille. Uh, but uh, you are notably one of the few, if not the only, women in this intellectual sphere. Why do you think that is?
0: Oh, I don't know the answer to that question, Megan. <laughs> um, I have no idea why that is. Uh, I, haven't really, I haven't really given much thought. I will say, though, that perhaps Theory of Enchantment uh, is a kind of feminine approach in the sense that it is concerned with the holisticness, uh, psychologically and spiritually, um, and I think I don't I don't know why, but that, I feel like that's very feminine energy. that's uh, this this feminine idea of how to create space, right, for for complexity, I think is a very feminine um, mm-hmm. concept. Uh, which isn't to say I'm not speaking here
1: now <laughs> You're of, of really essentialist. No,
0: <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not actually speaking. I'm, of, I'm not actually speaking of gender. I'm speaking more of like energy. You know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know
1: why. It's a good question. Well, because I have a theory. I mean, there are fewer of us. I mean, I'm also sort of one of these these people. Um there are and there are just a lot more men kind of speaking up and you know, getting yelled at on social media um <laughs> than there are women and my theory was that, you know, the in-group out-group dynamics uh sort of play out differently and oftentimes more intensively uh, in women than in men. It's like, they don't, I think that women really don't want to, this is, you know, uh, in the aggregate, obviously there are many exceptions, but like, we don't want people to be mad at us or something, (laughs) or like, we don't want to upset people. And so there, there's more of a, of a reluctance to kind of stick your neck out um, and I would think that as, as a Black woman, you would get it. Now, I'm, I'm going to be intersectional here. Here's my little Kimberly <laughs> Crenshaw moment. You get it on both fronts, right? So you would get Black people saying, well, why aren't you going along with the, the race orthodoxy? And you get women saying, why aren't you going along with the, the feminist orthodoxy? So is that something that you've thought about or you've, you're just uh, you're just too busy thinking about other things?
0: <laughs> I honestly think I'm too busy thinking about other things. I also just think it's very difficult to pin me down. Like, intellectually, philosophically, artistically, it's just very, uh, I I hope, impossible, actually, to pin me down. Like, I will argue that critical race theory is not only problematic because of its dehumanization of white people, especially in, you know, schools and things like that with the trainings, but it's also problematic because it, it, it reduces our understanding of black life to simply a condition of overwhelming despair, which just isn't true. Um, it's just not borne out by the historical record, so it's very difficult to be like you're either anti-white or you're either anti-black in that. In when I put forth that position, um, so even in the way I think and argue, uh, I think I'm trying to hold space for again complexity, uh, and and trying to also hold space for like. Where the parts where I do agree with certain things that critical race theorists agree with, the parts where I disagree, where certain what certain with what certain conservatives have to say, right? So, uh, I just think it's. Um, I just think it's kind of impossible to to pin me down in the sense.
1: <laughs> That's a good thing. Do you think that that hurts or helps your your brand? I think you've also said you're obsessed with branding, which to someone of my generation is is fascinating and puzzling. But uh, <laughs> like, I, I just I, I know I know you have to, to go in a minute. But like, what what are you hoping to? what what are you what kind of differences are you hoping to see say 5 years from now like do you think we're going to get past this moment because it's it's a really fraught moment and it's really painful for a lot of people but it's also just really stupid like it's just it's it's really surfacy in terms of its like cognitive uh engagement like are you are you hopeful about this kind of moment uh in intellectual history
0: Yes, I mean, I think that cultures go through different cycles. I think this was also kind of happening in the '80s, and then there was a backlash in the '90s um, in response to sort of this sort of an identitarian framework. Uh, so I, I I feel like one should take a page out of history and and sort of take a you know bird's eye view of of how cultures and societies uh and flow in terms of you know political trends. Um, so from that perspective alone, like, I know this will not continue, (laughs) like at some point it'll just, it'll transform or morph into something else. Um, hopefully what it will, what we can stop it because this is, this is a real issue. This is a real danger. the, The danger is that, you know, there's so many presuppositions that is coming out of a certain kind of ideology. That will actually drive people to become, specifically white people, to become more and more insecure about who and, and, and what they are. By the way, just to, for the record, insecure people cannot fight racism, by definition. Because, again, because of what I said earlier about how racism works. So
1: insecure people cannot fight racism. They cannot- Can insecure people do anything? That's, like, a good,
0: that's
1: a good point. Um. <laughs> I mean, they can do a lot of damage on, on social right. media. I mean, it is. It's sort of like identity politics. I, I often feel like it, what really it's like a lot of people having serious identity struggles. It's like identity crisis is being kind of swept up in this idea of identity politics. And then if you try to point that out, they're saying, oh, no, well, you know, you're being you're, you're, you're ignoring the big picture and there's structural power differentials and you're boiling it all down to somebody's personal neuroses. But frankly, it often is somebody's personal. Personal neuroses
0: it's not even it's a collective neurosis on the part of the country we are dealing with a crisis of meaning we are dealing with a crisis where people and entire communities of people don't actually know who and what they are and this is a problem uh, especially on a collective level especially when you throw in social media which is triggering our dopamine neurotransmitters to get us to become outraged because it it's profitable, right? All these things are interconnected. So I a hundred percent believe that we're dealing with like a collective, uh, like if not neurotic, certainly narcissistic crisis in the country.
1: Okay. Well, Chloe. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for for taking the time to talk all about this. You're such a a unique uh individual I guess everybody's a unique individual, but you're a unique voice and, and figure <laughs> in in this in this whole kind of gestalt. Um, is there anything you want to uh, just say about theory of enchantment um as we as we leave things here? Uh, do you have any exciting stuff coming up that you want to mention or uh what's on the horizon
0: sure um I said be on the lookout for that article that hopefully will be publishing soon that I alluded to. You can check out Theory of Enchantment at Theory of Enchantment.com or Theory of com, which is where our courses are. Uh, also, so just to end on a high point, because I feel like that was kind of depressing, the last thing I said, um, ultimately, why I think that this will change is because ultimately, I believe that people will rally for the arts. Uh, you can't you will end up destroying the arts if you put forth this idea in public discourse that human beings are simply nothing but their skin color uh and that that would that would mean that it would be pointless to read books or to engage with music or to you know go to dances or what have you that are put forth by people who don't look like you this will start this will start, somehow become um anachronistic right so i think that the arts will ultimately win over which is why I think uh, the trends that we're seeing now will ultimately come to an end.
1: Well, I hope so. And yeah, the, the arts, what's happening to the arts is a whole other discussion. So maybe I'll have you back on sometime to to mine mine those depths. So anyway, um, thank you so much, Chloe. And um, good luck with, with everything. And come back and talk to me again sometime.
0: Thank you, Megan. Will do. Take care.
1: That was my interview with Chloe Valdery. Chloe is the creator of Theory of Enchantment, a framework for compassionate anti-racism that she has introduced to workplaces around the world, including in South Africa, the Netherlands, Germany, and Israel. She has lectured at universities across America, including Harvard and Georgetown, and she has been a Bartley Fellow at the Wall Street Journal. She's written for that publication, as well as the New York Times and elsewhere. The article she mentions at the end of this interview appeared in the May 11th edition of Newsweek. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. For ad-free editions of this podcast, please support the show at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can get all sorts of perks there, including if you join at the $10 a month level or higher, $10 off your first purchase of official unspeakable podcast, nuanced AF merchandise. We've recently added new items, including stickers, magnets, more shirts and hats, including a trucker cap that I have to say is pretty awesome. You can see a listener modeling that cap on the show's Instagram page. Please tune in next week for another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay subtle, stay sane, go high when they go low or something like that. See you next time.
2: Guys, it's finally here. The dating show we've been waiting for, Naked and Afraid of Love. It's 16 naked singles on a deserted island looking for love. Stream Naked and Afraid of Love right now on Discovery+. Plus. Start your free trial today. Terms apply.
3: Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash this is home today. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like
2: change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a forty dollar BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com dot com or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time.
4: If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert, caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call one 888 Recovery now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state of the art campus in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.